Welcome, everybody. Before we start the show, I wanted to give you all a quick little golf story about something I just experienced. Uh, very, very cool experience for me. Uh, I recently caddied at the Honda Classic Pro-Am at PGA National um, on this Wednesday before the tournament. Um, very cool experience. I, I, get, I get there at uh, 6 in the morning. Uh, drive up from Miami to Palm Beach, get there at 6 in the morning, and waiting around at the uh, caddy area. Phil Mickelson's already hitting balls, probably a, a bucket deep already hitting balls, pitch blackout under, uh, you know, generated lights, um, doing putting in his time. So it's cool to see how much time and effort these, these guys who are basically at the top of their game and have already made it. They're still putting in the time, and that should teach you, you know, you're never done working and improving these guys have done almost everything that they've needed to do granted phil has never won that us open that he's waiting for but uh you know other than that phil has done everything that a golfer could possibly want to do um so that was fun to see so then i get um eventually paired up to carry steve spurrier's bag so uh, as as you all know i'm a uh, gators fan so being able to carry the bag of a gator legend like steve spurrier was pretty awesome. He was a really nice guy, fun to, to be around. And we got uh, paired with two different pros that day, Adam Scott and Matt Jones. Um, so again, let me say this was on the Wednesday before the tournament. Um, so Adam Scott, arguably the best swing in PGA Tour history, not necessarily the best player in PGA Tour history, but possibly the best swing in Tour history. Uh, Masters champion, very successful golfer extremely nice guy, uh, was able to walk some holes with him, which was very cool. He taught me a couple of things, um, including aim point, which is a green reading technique. Um, very, very knowledgeable guy, super nice. Um, and we also got to be with somewhat of an un unknown name of Matt Jones. Um, Matt's an Aussie. He uh, was definitely nice as well. Certainly more focused on... Um, the actual, you know, the pin placements of where the tournament was going to be, um, practicing a couple of balls while the uh, the Pro-Am was going on. So, you know, the Pro-Am would be putting out and he would be putting three tees on the green where the holes would probably be, hitting some chip shots towards there, hitting some putts towards there so he can learn what the putts are doing, how the chips are going to react, where the grain is, etc. Um, and so the coolest part about that is... The next day, Matt Jones goes out and fires a course record 61. Um, so that is awesome that I was around him the day before he did that. But not only that, he went on to win the tournament um, come Sunday. So I can't say that I've ever been around somebody who, who was about to win a PGA Tour tournament, let alone with them the day before, you know, talking with them and, uh, you know, picking their brain a little bit. So I just wanted to share this uh, little story with you all about uh, a couple of different topics about, like I mentioned, how you're never done learning and improving. There's always more to learn, always more to improve upon. Um, and also, you know, just how starstruck I was basically to, to be around these unbelievable players. As good as I have ever been, um, these guys are just beyond incredible golfers. Um, it is amazing to see how good and how consistent and how Center, center face contact they make and how good their wedges are and their putting. Um, I think in, in total throughout the 18 holes, 
Scott and Jones missed like three putts total. It was it was incredible. Um, so fun little story, but uh, let's get into the actual reason why we are here, and that is hotels with Max Allard. Welcome to this week's episode of Getting on the Green. This week we have one of my good friends, close friends, Max Allard, joining us today. Uh, one of my groomsmen, actually. Um, so he will be talking to us a little bit about the hotel industry, um, something that's gotten really beaten down by COVID uh, due to the lack of traveling. And um, I know he's going to talk to us a little bit about how business has affected the hotel industry and how large of a factor business travel is to the hotel industry. Um, but, you know, the lay person like me would just think of traveling as the main effect and like, you know, vacationers as the main effector of the hotel business. Um, so I'd like to welcome in Max, welcome. Thanks man, thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm uh, glad, glad to finally have you on. I've been talking about it for a while and uh, you know, we can finally squeeze in here. Um, to talk about some hotels so, so yeah in between baby naps <laughs> exactly uh Ma max uh just had a baby girl so once again another covid baby in the long line of uh getting on the green uh guests and uh host with uh some covid babies yep now's the time to do it they say <laughs> Uh, all right, Max. So, so let's talk a little bit about hotels. What's what's going on? Uh, what what have you seen? Uh, what was the well, well? Let's start before COVID. What what was the hotel market like um, before COVID? Um, like what what did you see? Yeah. So um, you know, even before COVID, um, you know, hotels have always been a risky asset. Uh, both from an investment point of view and also in terms of acquiring financing for it. Um, you know, the, the thing I think that makes it difficult um, is projecting revenue, you know, as opposed to office or multifamily where you have, you know, years long leases that are going to pay you a set amount of money over the, the term of the lease. Um, the hotel industry is really hard to forecast because not only is occupancy variant daily, but so is the rate that you're actually getting on it daily. Um, so, you know, it, it, even before COVID, it was a risky proposition. Um, and, and you see that, you know, in, in, in terms of a few things, uh, the cost of, uh, of borrowing money from the banks, you know, I mean, uh, one of our, our, our family, the company I work for, my family's investment company, they have, we own a few commercial real estate assets across a few different um, sectors. Uh, and we have an industrial property that we're looking to buy an add-on for. And, you know, the cost to borrow money for that add-on is two, 3% um, comparative to, you know, before COVID even the cost for acquiring money uh, or, or borrowing money uh, to build hotels was, five percent sort of at least you know even that's if you're a really institutional kind of um hotel developer even more expensive post-covid i mean that number's shot up far past seven percent if you can even get um a lender to finance uh new acquisitions um and you know there was also there was a, a variety of other challenges that were sort of facing the hotel industry 
um, coming into COVID. I mean, the main thing is, uh, you know, home sharing, um, particularly Airbnb. Um, in 2000, I mean, they're, they're, they're just eating into the market share of hotels. Um, in 2019, domestically, the Airbnb accounted for about 11% of total bookings uh, for uh, travel in the U.S. In 2020, that shot up to 18%. Um, I mean, you know, Airbnb just went public last year uh, and their market that, you know, I, I think their market value may be a little bit inflated. You know, everyone's got that IPO buzz, but um, currently their market value is 120 billion, which is more than Marriott, Hilton, Hyatt, and Intercontinental, which are the four big hotel companies, more than all those combined. Um, so, you know, there were, there were challenges sort of facing the hospitality industry before uh, COVID, but yeah, I mean, COVID has really, I mean, it's, it's impossible to understate the effect that it's had on the industry. Um, I mean, it's been, it's been a really tough year for hotel owners, um, and for hotel employees too. Um, yeah, I mean, just in terms of, no, go ahead, go ahead. Well, just, just some sort of, you know, numbers that I, 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 there's a, um, a report that, that was done recently that kind of measures the effect on the travel industry. Um, and, you know, there were 700,000 jobs lost in 2020 in the travel industry, in the hotel industry specifically, millions more if you include um, food and beverage. Occupancy rates down 35% in 2020. Um, the average daily rate, ADR, it's an important metric for hotels, down 21%. Uh, RevPAR, which is another hotel metrics, it's revenue per available room, um, down 48%. Uh, and just overall profitability in the hotel industry was down 85%. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's been, uh, it's been a tough year for the hotel industry. So with it's the fun. Airbnb uh, market value, um, it's, it's pretty interesting how you were comparing Airbnb to the actual, you know, gi gigantic companies of hotels where those companies actually own the assets. They own tangible assets, whereas Air Airbnb, they own a website. Other than that, mm -hmm. they own nothing, which is crazy that, you know, their, their market value is so much higher than something that has technically like a zero book value. Yeah. Well, that's interesting that you say that because, I mean, it's... It the interesting part about hotels is, is, and it makes it a little, it differentiates it a bit from other um, real estate investments is there's actually, you know, a, a, there's basically three parties involved in a hotel deal, at least three, sometimes, sometimes even more. Um, but you have sort of the owner of the hotel. Uh, then you have the uh, lender potentially, you know, typical of a normal real estate uh, asset, but then you have the operator and the hotel company. Um, so for example, you know, Marriott or Hilton, um, but they, Typically, they don't actually own the asset. It's usually, in, it's usually owned, I mean, depending on the size of the hotel, some are owned by individuals, others are owned by REITs. I mean, some are owned by governments uh, or, or larger public um, entities. Um, but the, that, that's another thing that makes hotels unique is sort of the structure of, of ownership. Basically, um, you know, the operator, the uh Hilton and the Marriott's, they make their money on fees. So there's a couple different types of fees. There's franchise fees and there's management fees. So management fees are what they sound like. It's, it's a, a percent that they take uh, from managing like the day-to-day -day operations of the hotels. Generally, it's split into sort of two categories. You have base fees, 
um, which is usually based on gross revenue of the hotel. Uh, and then you'll have incentive fees, which are based on um, profits, you know, uh, gross kind of operating profits. And, you know, that's up to the owner and the strength of the brand to sort of uh, negotiate, um, you know, how the fees are structured on that side. Um, and then you also have franchise fees, which is how companies like Hilton and Marriott really make the bulk of their money. Um, franchise fees are usually off the gross operating profit and it's like 10 to 15%. And that's just, so if I own a hotel and, you know, I want to have Marriott be the operator of it, I'm paying them 10 or 15%. Um, and that's just, that's just to have their name, you know, and, and usually that those fees are split up. There's like an initial fee um, that it could either be based off a percentage off of first year revenue or it could be based on like a per key cost. A lot of times the metric you use in hotel industries is per key, it's like per room. Um, so there's usually that initial fee. And then on top of that, they take a royalty fee, which is a percentage of the room revenue. And that's just to, uh, you know, basically to have the privilege of having their brand. Um, and then they, they take advertising fees, um, reservation fees, uh, loyalty program fees. So, you know, I mean, if you have, uh, a company like Marriott, uh, as the, the, the franchise of, of your hotel, you know, you get the added benefit of, they have a massive loyalty program, you know, credit cards. I mean, millions of people that are, that are signed up for their program. Um, and they take a fee for that. So that's another thing that's kind of like weird about hotels or different is that you really gotta, there's a lot of fees that get factored in before as an owner, you get any sort of return. Um, so, you know, sometimes, sometimes the um, hotel companies themselves will own assets, although usually the way they do it is that they'll provide, if you decide to go with like a Marriott hotel, for example, they'll provide like a per key cost to sort of renovate the room uh, or renovate the hotel to, to take it up to their brand standards. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it, that's, that's another reason what, what makes it a risky investment um, for people. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, the Airbnb and, and, you know, Airbnb is somewhat of a similar, it's kind of a similar model actually to the hotels and that, you know, they're taking like a fee based on, they have their reservations and their booking systems and, and you know, the actual hotels are, are individually sort of owned. Interesting. Um, so how are hotels surviving right now or are they surviving right now? Yeah, it's a good question. So, uh, I mean, you know, in, in 2020, you know, I think hotels were able to take advantage of some like government debt relief programs uh, and, and paycheck, you know, rent forbearance, paycheck, paycheck protection programs. Um, but I mean, those programs are running out and occupancy is not returned to, to pre-pandemic levels. So, um, you know, a lot of the individual hotel owners, um, are getting wiped out, you know, and that's one of the things that we'll unfortunately probably see is sort of a, a consolidation, you know, I mean, the, uh, in the market in terms of, I mean, the big boys are just, they're going to take advantage uh, of the uh, depreciated assets that are, that just can't keep up. And, you know, they're going to, they have more tools that they're uh, in their arsenal to uh, ride out the wave until travel does return. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a tough time to be an individual hotel owner. Um, and it's a tough time to be, you know, uh, uh someone who works in hotels, you know, I think you, when you lose 700,000 jobs, like, you know, you hope that a percentage of those will come back, but there's also, 
you know, a large percentage of those that are, they've already moved on with their lives, you know, and, and the hotel industry is not right now as, as glamorous maybe as, as it was, I don't know, five years ago or a few years ago, pre, pre-pandemic even. So throughout your network of uh, hotel owners, operators, I'm sure you're, you're involved in a couple different groups or, you know, at least have conversations with uh, other owners or operators um are people moving hotels like are they buying and selling hotels right now or are there people out there that are taking advantage of uh or or are most hotel owners just kind of doing everything they can to survive and hold on to their asset hoping that it's going to go back to you know the good times yeah well i think you know i think in 2020 especially you saw a huge decline in just overall hotel transactions it was down about two-thirds percentage year over year compared to uh 2019 and i think it's because you know people didn't want to take a huge hit on their asset value and you know sell when at the absolute bottom of the market um but you know like i said the the, uh, hotels are you know when you're running an operation like that they're expensive to run you know and, and the carrying costs are really high so um, I mean, it prices a lot of people out. Um, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, there, there, the, also the development pipeline is, has been shrunk a lot. You know, there were, you, you saw a decrease of about um, 10% in new uh, hotel rooms coming onto the market in, in 2020, you know, and I think that will probably continue um, in the, at least the short term, um, cause you know, a lot, it takes a long time to, to build a hotel. So a lot of the deals that, that were coming online in 2020, you know, they were financed years before. Um, so going forward, you know, I think that the, the total rooms coming online, it, it's probably going to decrease. Um, you're also seeing a lot of companies, you know, I mean, there are companies that are, you know, strategically thinking, how can we reposition some of these hotel assets? Um, you know, I've read about a few companies that are um, converting, um, you know, uh, smaller uh, in smaller markets are converting hotel rooms into like small uh, apartments. You know, I think with the uh, there's like a trend of, of millennials, you know, being willing to live in, in smaller um, apartments than before. So, you know, they're retrofitting these small hotel rooms with a little kitchenette uh, and then they're renting them out as um you know, multifamily apartments. Um, so you do see a trend of that. And there are definitely, you know, there are definitely people and more so than people, I think institutions with cash that are looking to acquire distressed hotel assets and thinking about how to reposition them. Um, you probably see less people trying to build new hotels at the moment. Um, you know, it's more about how do you reposition the asset. Um, so it, it's interesting that you mentioned uh, like the repurposing of the rooms. I was going to ask you about that. Um, if that's kind of one of the strategies that owners um, are taking in, you know, repurposing rooms either into office, other types of more permanent multifamily, even, um, you know, like what, what, are the, what can somebody do that's holding an asset that doesn't want to get rid of it, such as a hotel, um, you know, they have to be flexible and they have to be creative with it. So um, it's, it's interesting that you even mentioned that when I was going to ask you exactly that, like, if, is that something that's being done? Um, yeah. Yeah. It depends on, it depends also sort of on like the location and what the primary 
um, like traveler for that destination is, you know, like um, there's, you mentioned before about business travel, you know, and, and that has definitely been probably the, going forward, it has the most bleak outlook um, and, and, you know, even 2019, going into the pandemic, about 60 to 65% of hotel rooms were for business travel or, or, and revenue as well, about 60 to 65%. So there's a huge uh, portion of the um, hotel nights. And, you know, I mean, especially with individuals and companies becoming, you know, more used to working from home, conducting Zoom meetings, you know, the, the outlook for business travel, um, it's, it's not great going forward. Um, you know, I think, so I, I think hotels that were um, positioned to take advantage of a lot of business travel, those owners are definitely thinking about how they can repurpose. And, you know, a lot of them are in cities, like I, I've read a bunch, you know, Phoenix, Austin, um, other cities like that, where, you know, there was, there was some industry travel, uh, Houston, another one, a lot of Texas, actually. Um, there was a lot of business travel for like specific industries. So hotels in those markets, I think are probably looking more to like, how can we repurpose this asset? Um, you know, leisure travel, I think, has a much brighter outlook. I mean, we're already seeing that. I don't know if you've noticed it over in Miami, but on our side, you know, I mean, and it probably has to do with the fact that Florida is one of the few states in the country right now that have, you know, very limited restrictions in terms of gatherings and stuff like that. But um, leisure, I think there's a lot of pent up demand um, for leisure travel. Uh, and especially with, you know, international travel, probably having a, a longer term, you know, before, before it really comes back, domestic U.S. travel leisurely. Um, I think it's actually going to really soar in, in 2021. Um, so, you know, it depends on how you're positioned in the market. Um, and, you know, it's unfortunate because, you know, like I said, going into the pandemic, business travel was probably a safer bet than leisure, leisure travel. But now coming out of the pandemic, I mean, that, that's totally reversed. Yeah, Miami, uh, it seems like they never went through a pandemic there. It, it seems like our population has grown the entire time. It's I think it was just ranked, I heard on the radio that it's ranked as the number nine most congested city in the country, um, which is fairly crazy to me considering, you know, everything's so spread out in Miami. Um, but, you know, I, meanwhile, we're number nine in congestion. Um, yeah. So yeah, we've seen the same thing here in Southwest Florida. I mean, I'm in, so I'm, I'm located uh, on the other coast of Florida. I'm on the West coast uh, in the Naples area. Our hotel's located uh, in Marco Island. And I mean, we're seeing at the moment, I mean, occupancy, we're at a hundred percent and our ADR. So like the average rate we're uh, renting for right now, it's higher than it's ever been in history. Um, I mean, for the next like couple months. So it's a, it's a unique boom. You know, I don't know how much of that is going to, you know, I'm sure as the rest of the country starts to reopen that, that will probably get spread out a little bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a good time to, to own a hotel in Southwest Florida, I guess, uh, at the moment, if you're taking advantage of that, that leisure travel. So why would you say that your rate is higher now than it ever has been before? Um, and like, what, what type of thing affects that, like your, your average daily rate? Is it just solely based on um, like supply and demand or talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, I mean, one of the, one of the most important, um, 
departments in a hotel is your revenue management. Um, you know, I mean, the big hotels, I mean, they pay a lot of money uh, to their revenue managers and some of them have it automated and, you know, it is a, a factor of supply and demand. Um, and, you know, again, I think especially with sort of the pent up demand that, you know, it's been a year since people have traveled. And now as vaccines start to get rolled out a little bit more, people are more comfortable with traveling. You know, you see, you're seeing a little bit of a bounce back in, in airfare. Um, so, yeah, the it is it is a matter of, of supply and demand, and it's a matter. And what especially affects that right now is that just huge portions of the country that otherwise people might travel, or even internationally that people might travel, are just restricted. So, like you know, the people that are looking to get out of their houses in the Northeast, there's no other place to go really than Florida. You know, I mean, they can't go anywhere internationally. California is different. Um, you know the. It, it is a bit of a factor of, of supply and demand. Um, and Florida is definitely taking advantage of it. Um, and they've done a good job. I mean, the tourism industry is such a huge portion of Florida's um, revenue that they've, you know, the governor has made it a priority. Um, you know, whether you agree or not, he's made it a priority to really protect the uh, travel industry and the hotel industry. Um, and, you know, he's allowed business owners, restaurants and hotels to kind of adapt to the circumstances, you know, and, and implement, uh, you know, for restaurants, more outdoor seating, for hotels, different sanitary procedures uh, in terms of cleaning the room. Um, and so he's allowed business to adapt, which, you know, the Florida hotel owners have benefited from. So I don't want to get too much into politics. Um... But now that you mentioned it, um, from, I guess, both a citizen as well as an owner-operator, um, from your perspective, are these uh, regulations helping the citizens more or is it helping the uh, owners more? Because, you know, one of the big things these days is, you know, screw the big man and, you know, help the little guy. Um, so are, are, the, are the big guys getting mm -hmm. helped right now or are the little guys getting helped? In your opinion, I think, I think it's a, what's that? In your opinion, you know, I mean, either, either way. I mean, there's no wrong. In my opinion. opinion. Yeah. I mean, you know, honestly, I think everyone's really benefiting from it right now down in Florida. You know, it's, I mean, it's just, it's, I guess it's a bit of a factor of the way that the U.S. is constructed where states have so much power to sort of influence the regulations in their own state. But Florida, I mean, it's undeniable. Um, and especially, you know, if you compare Florida to the rest of the country right now, um, in terms of employment in the hotel industry, in terms of occupancy, in terms of, you know, revenue, all that. I mean, the people are benefiting across the board um, in Florida. I would say it's, again, you know, like we talked about in terms of the different segments, it's definitely benefiting leisure travel um, the most. Um, so, you know, I, that works well for us. We happen to be, uh, we happen to be primary, our business is primarily <laughs> leisure. So that works well for us in the moment. Um, but, you know, I mean, so just in our own, um, our own little bubble down here in, in Southwest Florida on Marco Island. Um, there's really limited hotel rooms. It's a, for people that aren't familiar with Marco Island, uh, it's a small beach, beach town uh, resort destination. Uh, it's known for its beach. It's got 
five or six miles of really pristine, um, beautiful beach right on the Gulf of Mexico. Um, and so the, the main hotels that are down here uh, on Marco Island is, is there's the Hilton, which is on the beach. It's an older hotel, it's kind of smaller rooms, um, but it's positioned great on the beach. And then there's the JW Marriott, which is sort of the, they're the big fish in the pond. They have, I mean, over a thousand rooms. They just did a $300 million renovation to a convention center. Their business is primarily driven by convention business. Um, and so, you know, they are, uh, they took a huge hit because, you know, I mean, Leisure was supposed to, when they, you know, when they financed this hotel, Leisure was supposed to be sort of a smaller percentage. You know, luckily, I mean, it's a nice hotel on the beach, so they've been able to capture some leisure demand. But I mean, going forward, I mean, they, you know, they built this brand new convention center with the, the goal of hosting conventions, you know, and, and it's a different type of revenue when you got those business conventions because, you know, people are spending money on corporate cards. They're, they're a lot, uh, you know, less frugal than if it's their own money that they're spending. So um, just write it off. You know, it, it depends. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, I mean, it, it, it depends. Um, you know, I think, I think if you ask, if you ask the operator of the hotel, which is Marriott, they're probably pretty happy because they're, they're being able to drive revenue. You know, they're still collecting their fees. If you ask the owner of the property, you know, who just wrote a 300, you know, or just financed a $300 million project banking on all these convention business, they're probably like a lot more scared about their investment going forward and and you know like we talked about earlier hotels being risky and hard to project you're also susceptible to like huge swings in the market you know like it's really it's it's hard to project the next three months in the hotel industry let alone the next you know 20 years or 25 years if you take a out a, a big loan um so you know we'll see we'll see what the we'll see how it all plays out there you know, I, but um i'd say i'd say it's definitely benefited um it's definitely benefited owner operators um and especially in 2021 um the the government policies in florida have been really beneficial to us um we do have partners uh that so the the partner our operator in our hotel is a company called uh, lark hotels they're based out of the northeast they primarily run a bunch of vacation properties uh, in the Northeast, Nantucket, Martha's Vineyard, the Cape, Rhode Island, stuff like that. Um, and they have taken a, a really, they took a really tough hit last year, um, you know, because they're, they're, the states there, they had a lot stricter regulations. Um, and then, you know, even still now, like the, you know, I, I think they're projecting to have a good summer, um, but they it, it's been a lot harder on, on them. Um, and we also have partners in California. Um, I used to work for a company, uh, SBE, uh, they're a big international hospitality industry, uh, and, you know, their assets elsewhere in the U S, you know, they've seen a huge, uh, a huge effect. I mean, they're in Los Angeles, Las Vegas, um, and those markets have been, you know, even more destroyed than, than Florida. All right. So you mentioned about how you have to be kind of flexible with, um, you know, what's going on and, you know, with the supply and demand. So how often do the rates change? Like, are they, are you changing rates on your hotel rooms, like weekly, daily, you know, minute by minute, like based on who's booking, 
And, you know, so, so how do you, how do you tackle that? Yeah. Uh, I mean, the answer is all of the above. Uh, I, I, you know, at the bigger hotel companies, when they have dedicated revenue departments, they're changing them minute by minute. And, you know, some of them are, uh, you know, they have algorithms that sort of measure the total amount of rooms available in the market. Um, first what like prior, uh, you know, previous years rates have been. Um, so they're changing literally minute by minute. Like you book a hotel room, inventory goes down, rates go up. Um, for our hotel, we have uh, our, our manager, they change them daily. Uh, and then we have a weekly call with ownership um, where we go over sort of rates, general rate strategy for the next, you know, few weeks or months. And we talk about demand and stuff like that. So we set like an overarching kind of strategy for a few months. But yeah, I mean, they, they adjust daily um, and, and some companies minute by minute. All right. So we're getting towards the end of our time here. So um, you mentioned briefly about kind of what you think the, the future is. For hotels, um, but kind of dive a little bit deeper into that. So what is the future of hotels? I remember at the beginning of COVID, you told me that like your conglomerate of hotel owners were saying like, this is the apocalypse. It's never going to be the same. Uh, the world is ending. Uh, do they mm -hmm. still feel that way? Uh, did you ever feel that way? Uh, what What is uh, Max Allard's guess for the future of hotels? Yeah, well, you know, I think like with many industries and in times of disruption is actually when you get the best innovation. Um, so I think hotels, you know, it's going to be different than pre-pandemic. Hotels are going to have to innovate. They already had the um, added competition of home sharing and Airbnb. And I think that is probably long term a, a bigger challenge than, you know, the pandemic itself. Um, so I think, you know, hotels are going to have to innovate and some of the innovations you know, I sort of see is a, I think they're going to have to focus, refocus on the guest experience, um, focus on service. You know, one of the things that, that sets hotels apart from Airbnb is the service you get, you know, and, and just like any um, service industry, really great service will set you apart from competitors in the market and it creates lasting experiences for the guests. So, um, you know, I think hotels will kind of refocus on, on what, you know, they were originally, their original um, uh, motive was, which is to create memorable experiences for their guests. Um, I think that there will be a renewed focus on design of hotels. Um, you know, the, that's one thing that can set them apart from, from the Airbnb and sort of the generic uh, box kind of hotels is the boutique hotel industry tries to instill a sense of place, you know, so a hotel that you stay in in South Florida is a lot different in terms of decor and design than a hotel that you stay in in New York, you know, and it reflects the, um, the local sort of markets. Um, I think also F&B uh, previously, F&B, you know, for hotels was almost like an afterthought. Like, you know, you have a, I don't know, like a all-you-can-eat breakfast bar. You have a hotel that does three square meals a day. They're not, you know, great. They just, you just have to kind of check the boxes. I think going forward, F&B can be, and that was actually one thing I, I learned when I was with SBE. They do a really good job with their F&B and developing individual brands. But I think F&B can be a distinguishing factor for hotels compared to um, Airbnb. Um, you know, whether that's celebrity chefs or locally sourced cuisine, you know, there's, there's definitely a desire um, in a lot of leisure travelers for good food. I mean, there's a lot of options nowadays. We're all exposed to great food all over the place. So when you go stay at a hotel, 
you know, you expect good food at the hotel as well. So um, there's a lot of ways that the, the hotel industry, I think, will, will um, innovate. And, you know, I think the, the future for hotels overall is bright. You know, I, I think that um, it, it may take a little bit to get back to pre-pandemic levels, um, but I still love the field. You know, it's where I want to make my career. It's where I want to be. Um, and overall, I, I think that um, when we come out the other side, we'll be more poised uh, to to adapt to the consumers' needs in the in the centuries to come. So Airbnb is not going to take over the hotel industry. I don't think so. Segments of it, maybe you know, but I still, you know, I don't know. When I travel, I, I you know, I'll, I'll look at Airbnb. They're a competitor. You're gonna have to take them seriously. But I still like the, uh, I still like the face to face interaction. I like the service at a hotel. You know, I like having food and beverage options, being able to be brought to my room or have a nice restaurant or have a pool with drinks by the pool and, you know, having a great concierge and a friendly front desk staff and daily housekeeping. You know, there's a lot of things that hotels offer in terms of service that, that Airbnb, you know, never will. And you don't think that uh, people are going to shy away because, you know, obviously some hotels are different than others and their capacity but for the most part, hotels pack in a lot of people into a small space where in an Airbnb, for instance, you're secluded, you're private, basically. Yeah, well, I think, you know, I think that's where some of the innovation is going to have to come. You know, I think the resort destination hotels are, are going to become a thing, um, you know, and, and whereas before you wouldn't really necessarily think about how crowded the hotels or if the hotel rooms were like stacked on top of each other you know in the future you may see uh you know a more spread out you may see sort of like larger hotel rooms you know that maybe combine uh a, a work area as well um and, and hotels are already starting to innovate uh in this aspect but you know you'll see a change in the design you know i'm curious how you know hotels designed from now forward, I think you're going to look differently than hotels that were designed prior to the pandemic. So we'll see that sort of play out over the next 10 years. Um, but, you know, hotels are an adaptable industry. Uh, and I, I think that the, the travel market, leisure travel market is going to rebound strongly. So I'm hopeful and I'm optimistic. Well, that's great. Uh, I really want to thank you for joining us today, Max. Uh, you gave some great information, kind of eased all our senses on uh, whether or not uh, hotels are going to be a thing of the past or not. Um, I was kind of 50-50 on that where I was like, hey, you know, I mean, as a standard consumer who has no skin in the game when it comes to hotels, I wouldn't really be bothered much if, you know, hotels were replaced by, you know, the Airbnb concept um, or daily rental, for instance, you know, it doesn't have to be Airbnb. Um, but obviously somebody with skin, skin in the game, you know, that's a, that's a major factor, but if you don't think that that's going to, you know, necessarily put you out of business, then, I mean, obviously coming from an expert that, uh, you know, eases the mindset of the lay person such as me, yeah. I'm sure a bunch of the listeners. Well, we have to do a good job of winning your business and other people like you in the future uh, and, and creating memorable experiences and, and overwhelming you with service in a way that you feel it's worth the extra money or it's worth the extra stress of, of dealing with a hotel as opposed to uh, an Airbnb. So it's just added competition. But like I said, disruption usually breeds innovation. So I think hotels will innovate. Um, 
yeah, and hopefully, uh, hopefully the outlook is good going forward because uh, <laughs> like we do optimism. have skin in the game. Yeah, <laughs> always got to be optimistic <laughs> these days. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate you coming on. Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Getting on the Green with Max Allard as our guest for this week, uh, talking about hotels. Um, it's always a pleasure to have somebody that you're very close with who's also an expert in something uh, teaching you and informing you about a subject that you you know, only have basic knowledge about, uh, especially when it comes to the hotel world where you know, we're all consumers at some point in the hotels. And so not knowing how they're going to react after COVID is really important knowledge to have. Um, but, you know, hopefully Max eased your minds and uh, gave you a little bit of confidence. I know he did with me. Um, so I hope you all enjoyed this episode. We have many more episodes coming up. If you have not been to our website, please do so, gettingonthegreen.com. Uh, it's a fun little website, a uh, little bit of information about me, a blog, a couple of blog posts on there. Um, you can also find the podcasts on there, as well as a link to contact me. If you have any questions, comments, would like to be on the show, uh, feel free to reach out to me on that website, gettingonthegreen.com. Uh, there is a link there, like I said. Be happy to speak to you, see if we can arrange something. Um, so until next time... We will see you on the green.